With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Heard by millions worldwide through 38 internet radio stations and in over 135 countries. Come join us on Facebook for your daily dose of inspiration and action that reveals the secret within you. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash Law of Attraction Radio Network. That's facebook.com forward slash Law of Attraction Radio Network. Molecules of emotion, remote viewing, nootropics, miracles of mind, super learning, the physiology of trauma, PSI, morphogenic resonance, heart intelligence, theater of the mind podcast, accelerating the evolution of human consciousness, theater of the mind podcast, brought to you by brainsync.com. CDs and MP3 downloads for peak performance at BrainSync.com. Expand your knowledge of the body-mind connection and learn how to tap the other 90% of your unused potential. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Theater of the Mind, your host, Kelly Howell. Today, we're going to delve into a science that is very dear to my heart. It's the science of creating more happiness, health, and success. The pursuit of happiness is no longer a mystery. It's a science. And best of all, there are proven skills you can easily apply to accelerate your happiness and ultimately your success in life. My guest is a leading expert in happiness creation. Dr. Emma Sapala is the science director at CARE, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. Dr. Sapala has a BA from Yale in Comparative Literature, a master's degree in East Asian Studies from Columbia University, and a PhD in Psychology from Stanford University. She completed her postdoctoral studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with Dr. Richard Davidson, and she is the author of a wonderful book that we're going to talk about today, The Happiness Track, How to Apply the Science of Happiness to Accelerate Your Success. Dr. Sapala, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you're here, too. Let's start off with your work at Stanford. What is the mission of CARE? The mission of CARE is to promote the science of compassion in various ways. One is through research, um, two is through um, conferences and events that we put on, such as uh, conferences on compassion in business, compassion in healthcare, compassion technology, and finally through education. So we do have a compassion training program and teacher training program. I'm curious, what is compassion technology? Compassion Technology was a conference we put on, um, co-sponsored by Facebook and um, with a number of leading experts in Silicon Valley on the application of compassion to technology. And how does that work? Well, through there's so many platforms now, 
for example, Facebook is a good example, um, a, a really large social networking platform. And there are all sorts of interactions that happen on that platform. And Facebook is constantly thinking about how to make that platform more compassionate, for example, by reducing online bullying um, and other such things. Oh, that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. Gosh. Well, what inspired you to write the happiness track? Well, two things. For one, I grew up in France, and then I moved to the U.S. for college, and then I went to China for a couple of years, came back to the U.S., and have lived on the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. And again and again, I've noticed that some people have everything and are not happy, and other people have nothing and are happy, very happy. And so I realized that happiness is really more about a state of mind um, than about your environment or about the things you possess. And the secondly, studying and, and working in places like Yale and Stanford Silicon Valley, New York, I just noticed that people buy into this misconception that in order to be successful, you have to sacrifice your happiness. Um, but if, and so that's why we're seeing, you know, 50% burnout across industries. We're seeing 70% of the American workforce is disengaged at work. Um, and yet, if you look at the research, if we take care of ourselves and our happiness, we're actually going to be more successful, more creative, more focused, more productive, more charismatic, more insightful. And we're going to have better relationships. We're going to have better decision making and and improved emotional intelligence. Yeah, one of the uh, things that I got out of your book, one of the many, many um, little golden eggs <laughs> your book laid, uh, was that, uh, you know, we equate success with stress. Like if you're going to be successful, you have to work really hard. It's stressful. There's so much going on. And um, I think that's kind of a, a critical association that we need to get rid of. Yes. In fact, many people believe that the only way they're going to get things done is to pump themselves up with adrenaline. So over caffeination, over scheduling, waiting till the last minute to get things done. Um, those are things that, you know, people do every day with this idea that this is how I'm going to um, be more productive. And yet um, what that actually leads to is nothing else than burnout. Um, and, you know, for the over-caffeinating thing is an interesting one because it's so accepted. And yet what we're doing is we're putting our body in a constant state of fight or flight, which is absolutely exhausting for the nervous system. We're only supposed to be in that state in a life and death situation. And yet by constantly activating that, we're burning our adrenals out, we're burning ourselves out, we're burning our energy out. And that's why people come home from a day at work where they were just sitting at their desk and they're exhausted. Why? We're doing manual labor. Uh, most people aren't doing manual labor. Uh, if they are, they're definitely justified in being tired. But, but otherwise, we're burning ourselves out unwittingly. Do you think multitasking plays a big part in that? It can. For example, when you open your inbox... And let's say you have 30, 40 messages in there. It can range from, you know, personal messages from a friend that's positive, but it can also have an email from your boss that stresses you out and from your colleague, which makes you nervous. And then from your spouse that's who's angry at you. And then you get a bill that's late, you're late in paying and a credit card notification. Can you imagine the range of emotions you go through? In, in the past, in one day, we would maybe go through a range of, you know, six, seven emotions. Now, just looking through your inbox, you can go through 30 emotions in five minutes. It's <laughs> unbelievable. No, it's true. It's true. I like my mornings to be analog. So I have all notifications turned off. I read a book, like not a Kindle. 
You know, I like to, because I went back and I thought, what's changed in the last five, six years? Everything is electronic for me. It's, it's really stressful. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's nice. I mean, more and more people are choosing to do these technology fasts too, maybe one day a week or after 7 p.m. and before 7 a.m. You know, there's no technology. We actually, in our house, we just, the Wi-Fi goes off (laughs) at a certain point of time. It's just like, you know what, this is. Um, this time to just get back to basics and really rest our system because otherwise people, you can get up from your bed and check your email first thing, you know, maybe even before you look at your spouse, uh, or the person, whoever's with you. And then, um, all the way till the end of the day, including time spent with children, with friends, with family, uh, with the eyes on a screen instead of interacting or instead of just being for, so in terms of creativity, for example, research shows that CEOs across the board, uh, look for one thing above everything else in incoming work, uh, the workforce, and that's creativity. Because everyone's always trying to disrupt their industry, right? Everyone needs to come up with the most innovative breakthrough idea that's going to make them be number one in whatever that domain is. Um, but the problem is that creativity does not come when you're constantly focused, constantly working, constantly on your screen. It comes in those moments like when you're in the shower or when you're taking a walk um, in those moments when we're not actually involved with something in a focused way, when our brain is in delta wave mode. Uh, it's that place right before sleep, for example. So nowadays, with because we're so involved with technology 24-7, we've actually stopped having those moments where we let our mind just daydream and be idle. Does that make sense? And oh, also yeah. oh, stopping yeah. ourselves from having potentially these aha moments. Yeah, the, uh, to underscore what you're saying, that Harvard research uh, that says a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And um, could you give us a brief overview of that research? Because it does dovetail with what you're saying. Right. So we know that. Um, so in this study, uh, they gave people blackberries and pinged them throughout the day and said, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And what are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like, are you thinking about what you're doing and how are you feeling? And they found that you're never happier than in the present moment, even if you're doing something that you don't like. Like sitting in a traffic jam. Right. So let's say you're sitting in a traffic jam and you're daydreaming about Hawaii or something. You're still happier if you're just completely present with the task at hand. And yet our mind wander, they also found that our mind wanders 50% of the time. So 50% of the time we're not here. Um, and, and that's really interesting. But if you think about it, if we're not here, we're in the past or in the future. And a lot of emotions can come up with that. So the future, thoughts about the future, yes, you can anticipate something great happening. But most of the time, those are anxious and fear-invoking thoughts. And if your mind's in the past, those are often regret, anger. Those are all emotions tied to something that happened in the past. So it's really interesting to think, you know, most of the, if we're able to stay more present, more peaceful, more calm, um, we're going to be happier. It's so true. I know when I'm in traffic, I like to be on time and I know I'm going to be late. My mind just goes into, oh, I'm going to be late and did it. And it, it, it uh, activates that whole stress response. Right. Well, this is the thing. Um, so you're, and, and this is what I'm trying to say in the book, like we can't all, you know, take off and live in retreat, right? We can't necessarily do anything about the responsibilities on our plate or about the stressors that are coming our way. We're going to have life stressors. We've had life stressors. They'll continue to come. There's nothing much we can do about that. But one thing we can do something about is the state of our own mind. And so let's take stress, for example. 
I've worked with some of the most stressed individuals in our society, veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they seem permanently locked in a state of fight or flight. It's as if they their system hasn't switched off because of the traumatic experiences they've had. So they can't sleep. They um, they uh, startle at the slightest sound, a sound you wouldn't even notice. They're under the table or jumping up or something. Um, and, and they have a very hard time focusing, very hard time having uh, relationships, and sometimes even very hard time getting out of their basement uh, where they're often bunkered up in fear. So I worked with um, you know a, a, a group of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and we decided to use a technique that was very different but also very ancient, and that's breathing, the yoga-based breathing. Because the breath taps right into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite of the fight or flight, which is the opposite of that sympathetic stress response. Um, the, the parasympathetic is it, also called the rest and digest. It helps you calm down quickly. And breathing actually helps tap into that very fast. It calms your heart rate and your blood pressure very quickly. So we're all, we all breathe and we're all breathing all the time. So you, you might wonder, what are you talking about? What you want to do is you want to take deeper breaths and you want to slow down your exhale. When you do that, you're slowing your heart rate and your blood pressure. So deep breaths and slower. And then, so that's something you could do in the traffic jam. For example, you feel your mind racing, you're worried. You could do that. What are some other exercises that you found that help to bring the mind into the present moment? Well, an obvious one is mindfulness or meditate. Some kind of meditation. There are many forms of meditation aside from mindfulness. By the but way, but like when you're at work, say, or you're at the computer. And- Absolutely. Well, one I would recommend is is just sometimes when we get so anxious, we're really caught up in our thoughts. So even taking two minutes, just close your eyes and just pay attention to your body at that moment, or or stretch something that gets you in your body so you're either stretching for two minutes or you close your eyes and you just focus on your body if you think about it the mind is wandering all the time but your body's always in the present moment so bringing your attention back to your body will ground you even if it's you're bringing your feet your attention to your feet you know somewhere where you, you have some place a part of your body you never think about um just two minutes so it's something you can do at your desk no one needs to notice you can even have your eyes open you can do it at a meeting whatever but that will help ground you and that'll bring you back into the present moment I think it's really important, this distinction, because uh, with all the technology and computers and how much we're using our brains at work, uh, we get out of our body. I notice I have to have a standing desk. I move around. I have my little beeper to get up so I get back in my body. And I actually work better when I move around because it's so easy to forget your body. You're so engaged mentally that uh, you forget you have a body. It's abs- it's absolutely correct, and believe me, I'm in academia where I think most people have long oh. forgotten that they have a body. Uh, um, a lot of walking heads, huh? <laughs> it it really is the case, and it's interesting because you know you're doing research on so if you're a psychologist, you're doing research on people, but you haven't connected with them. So I, I work with veterans a lot, and I was I was re- to recruit you know a lot of the researchers I work with, they'd never even met a veteran. And I was thinking, how can you have any insights into them if you're not interacting with them, if you're not going out and meeting them? You know what I mean? But it becomes this theoretical thing. It's really interesting how people, how research is happening, honestly. It's not really grounded in reality. Well, it's hard to have insight into a population if you're not interacting with that population. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the body picks up just being in the presence. You pick up so much more than reading it on a piece of paper. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah. And so much happens through connection. So that's another aspect of happiness, well-being, but also success in all realms of life is, you know, we have the fundamental need to belong. Our After food and shelter, our greatest need is for positive, warm, social connections with other people. That is so essential. It determines our health, psychological health, our physical health, our longevity. It is so critical. And it is such a deep desire that we have, no matter what we're doing. You know, people can think they're on this treadmill because they want to do this, 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 this. But if it really comes down to it, they want to feel a sense of belonging and connection. Mm. And and so a lot of people will say, well, I don't have time. I'm a mom. I don't have time to socialize. Or I'm just so busy. Or I'm an introvert. I'm shy. You know. And so the good news about this research is it doesn't matter how many friends you have. It has everything to do with your subjective feeling of connection. How connected do you feel on the inside to the people around you? And that's really great because it puts the it, it puts the drive uh, the uh, the steering wheel back into your own hands, and your your sense of connection is very dependent on your well being. You'll notice that if you're stressed, anxious, unhappy, you're more focused on yourself, and it's harder to connect with people. But if you take care of yourself, you also feel much more connected to others. But the other thing I really recommend is um, being of service to others. It doesn't mean you have to go feed orphans in Somalia. It, it, it could just be going about your day and deciding that every person I interact with, I want to uplift or I want to contribute to them. I want to smile at them. It's even something small. That can be a way of being of service in the world. Mm -hmm. And it feels good to the person giving. Oh, it feels so good. Amazing. And the receiver. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, you write that um, that being present in the moment increases one's charisma. How is that? Well, people often think charisma is this special gift, special talent, something you're born with. Um, and yet, if you if you look at what people say about individuals like Bill Clinton, for example, is an, an example of, of someone People will say have a lot of has a lot of charisma. And they say, when I met him, I felt like I was the only person in the room. So what is charisma? Actually, charisma is the ability to be so 100% present with another person that they feel so heard, listened to, important in that moment. And you can only do that if you are 100% present. And I think in this time and age, we can go for days not feeling like anyone is really listening to us. You, you, you can talk to someone. You can just notice in their face if they're not really with you. And sometimes it's obvious because they're looking at their phone. I mean, you can, it could be your spouse. It could be the people closest to you, and you, they're not really listening. So it's so amazing when you encounter someone who's actually listening, and in that moment, you're the most important person. You know? So it, why is that? So that's what I mean by charisma. If you break down charisma, it's empathy. It's the ability to empathize with someone. It's the ability to be enthusiastic with that person. It's the ability to really connect with them through eye gaze, through um, through your entire presence. So true. So true. I've met some CEOs and very successful people at a high level. And it's so amazing, that feeling of being the only person they care about in that moment. You're just fully present with them. It's amazing. And we have that ability to be that with anyone. And yes, it'll make us more charismatic, but it also makes us a gift to the people we're with because we may be the first person that's listened to them in months. How do you recommend people start developing that ability? Honestly, it can just be an intention, right? And then when you're with people, just seeing what can I do to be completely present? And so I talk a lot about empathy because empathy is something we're all wired for. So we often think, 
I don't know if I'm empathic or not. By empathy, psychologists mean that ability to feel another person's emotions. And we all are wired for that. So it's the reason, for example, that when you see someone trip and fall, you cringe or you gasp. Because just seeing someone fall internally, you resonate with that person. In other words, you feel like you've fallen. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have that reaction. Or when you hear a, a child crying, it can have, it has, we know that baby cry, baby's cries are, ha, it has a visceral impact on pretty much everyone. Oh, absolutely. And so um, we're we, we are, we're very much wired for that. And that's why you'll notice when, you know, if someone you know well walks in the room and something's wrong, you'll say, what's wrong? You'll, before you even know something's wrong, you you know something's wrong, mm-hmm. um, because we we can register the minutest change in them, and that registers within us, and we register something's wrong. So it happens very very fast, very automatically, very physiologically, and so uh, we have that ability to be empathic. So what I'm saying is that we therefore also have the deep ability to connect with another person. It just requires paying attention. Yeah. You know, I noticed, too, there are certain types of people that um, uh, my husband and I make a joke about. We call them broadcasters because mm-hmm. it just goes one way. Mm-hmm. The, the communication, it's all about them. And mm-hmm. it's a one-way communication. Street. Yeah, one-way street. <laughs> yep. They're not being present with you. No, and chances are they're not really connecting with a lot of people. So it, it, in, at the end of the day, uh, it's unclear, you know, how deep or how many their relationships they really do honestly have. Right. And they're not happy. And probably not. No, no. I want to get back to this whole stress response and the wandering mind. And you, you write that stress can be a good thing. What's the distinction between good stress and bad stress? Well, I think we all know that, you know, stress can really help you push you through that deadline and get you to <laughs> get your taxes in on time, right? Right. So in a similar way, um, that's really what stress was designed for. I mean, not necessarily for taxes, but let's say we had a predator coming our way, um, an animal or something. And that moment, our stress response kicks in. We can move faster. Our body is prepared for injury. Um, our attention is very, very focused. And and we're very, we, all of our stress, all of our um, different mechanisms, physiological me- mechanisms, cognitive mechanisms are very acute at that moment so that we can get away from danger. And then immediately we're supposed to go back into parasympathetic rest and digest. Digest, yeah. Because we have to repair and restore. And the problem is that we like to tap into this stress uh, fight or flight response constantly and we just do it naturally i mean just through the caffeine or other stimulants or or a very stimulating lifestyle um and then we wonder why why we want to take anti-anxiety pills or sleep medication or alcohol or whatever it is at night do you think it's sort of is there an addiction there to that kind of adrenaline high stress mode that people kind of get into a a habit like it's their default state it is um but it's unfortunately a very taxing one Mm -hmm. and it it depletes your it depletes your body and it depletes your nervous system and so you know we're we're seeing that you know 70 or 80 percent of doctor's visits are can be attributed to stress yeah and we need to look at that and we need to look at that 50% of the American workforce is burnt out across industries it doesn't matter if you're working for a nonprofit for the medical field or the legal field, 
this is a big problem and it's making us unhappy. It's making us tired. You're hearing about chronic fatigue syndrome. You're hearing about all sorts of stress related problems. And we're living in a first world country and we're not at war in this country. I mean, there is not a reason for us to do this to ourselves, but we believe this is how we're going to be productive. However, if you look at the data, if instead you value calmness and you stay more at peace during the day, not always, like if you want to give a presentation, get up there, be enthusiastic and excited and all that stuff. But you don't have to be like that all the time. And if you value more calmness and you nurture that in your lifestyle, you're going to conserve your energy. You're going to manage your energy. Not just that, you're going to make better decisions. You're going to be more emotionally intelligent because when our brain is in fight or flight mode, we don't think at our best and we certainly don't interact at our best. And our perceptions are thrown off. It colors right. everything. Yep. How we receive any information once you kind of go over that edge. Yes. And how we communicate. And that can lead to other problems. We know that, you know, success at work, for example, or at home depends first and foremost on your ability to communicate in a positive way with other people. Well, what are the markers that let, let us know that we've gone over the edge into that overdrive uh, fight or flight mode? Well, you know, some, as you said, some people are very disconnected from their body, so it can feel like, how do I know? Well, I think for one, very simple. If you're having issues sleeping, if you're having, um, issues with uh, getting yourself to calm down when you get home, to just relax, if your mind is constantly racing, uh, if you're exhausted. Those are just some of the symptoms that you can see, uh, or, or if you're jittery, you know. Um, and, and then, but I, I recommend things like meditation just to get in touch with how you're doing. You can prevent burnout if you catch it early. I think you have a different approach to stress management. Yeah. What I, I call it less stress management and resilience, because like I said, you can't control what comes at you, but you can control your own state of mind. So if you create a state of mind that's resilient, for example, if you engage in breathing exercises that tap into your parasympathetic nervous system day after day, then as soon as you encounter a stressor, which we all do and will, and that's just life, we'll be able to come back to a calm place faster. Because if you're constantly in fight or flight mode, and then you encounter a big stressor, it's really hard to come back because you you don't even have a baseline that you're coming back to. So if you're training yourself with breathing exercises day after day or meditation, then you'll find that you, when you bounce back much more quickly, that's one way to cultivate resilience. Another way to cultivate resilience is through self-compassion, which sounds very soft. There's a lot of good data behind it. Um, people often think self-criticism is the secret to self-improvement. And yet, if you look at the data, self-criticism is basically self-sabotage. It's akin to, I often give this example because I think it's very vivid. If you're running a marathon for the first time and you trip and fall and somebody on the sideline says, oh my gosh, you're not a runner. You're such a loser. You should totally just go home. <laughs> yeah. Versus someone on the other side who says, guess what? Everybody falls. It happens to everyone. It's like no big deal at all. You can totally do this. Go for it. That's the voice of self-criticism versus self-compassion in your head. And 
we know that the brain focuses on the negative. So whenever we are in that highly self-critical mode, we're basically self-sabotaging. It's linked to less resilience, less ability to grow in the face of mistakes, um, to, to learn from challenge and so forth and so on. And self-compassion is linked to incredible benefits and learning from your mistakes and growing from your difficulties, better relationships, but more happiness and even better um, health. You have to be really aware to be self-compassionate. You have to be aware of your, your inner critic and then stop it. Well, it's, it's, it's having the ability to treat yourself as you would a friend. If a mm. friend of yours failed the way you did, would you talk to them the way you talk to yourself? No, of course not. Right. What I find interesting is if our, if our default mind state is the wandering mind... 50% of the time we're wandering and also the wandering mind uh, can make us unhappy. I just am curious why we are, we go to the negative thinking so automatically. Because mm -hmm. daydreaming is good for us. Right. We do need downtime. We do need yes. to wander. We do need that dream time. Yes. But it seems that a lot of the wandering mind is negative. You know, daydreaming is, is critical for creativity, for well-being. Our research is showing it has incredible benefits. But what we don't um, find so favorable is, is things like rumination, going over and over and over something that happened and that was negative, or um, focusing on something that's about to happen and that's anxiety-provoking or fear-inducing and that's creating stress right now about something that may or may not happen. But we know that the brain has a tendency to focus on the negative, and that probably helped our ancestors remember, you know, not to play with tigers because of what happened to Aunt Sally, or you know, th those things. They had a survival purpose. But now, nowadays, um, we know from research that three times more positive things happen to us than negative things, and yet we tend to have one negative thing happen, and it colors our entire day. True. You have a uh, chapter in your book titled, Get More Done by Doing More of Nothing. How do we do that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, creativity is the most important, um, the import most important trait that CEOs are looking for in their incoming workforce. And whether you're a stay-at-home mom or um, a CEO uh, or an employee, creativity is something we need every day, uh, whether it's to get our kids to eat or sleep or uh, to figure out problems at work. We need to have those aha insightful moments to solve the problems that we deal with every day. And, and yet, um, as I mentioned earlier, where, you know, by being constantly focused, constantly doing things constantly productive, uh, we're actually preventing ourselves from being in that delta wave mode of the brain, which is that place that really accesses creativity and insight. So um, I'll give you the example of Salvatore Dali, who he knew this about the brain and he knew he'd get his most creative insights in that moment right before sleep when his brain was in delta wave mode. And so he would sit on a chair and hold a key in his hand and there would be a metal sheet underneath the chair. And whenever he'd fall asleep, he'd drop the key and the key would fall on the sheet and make a loud noise and he'd wake up and then he'd start over. He was basically trying to access that deep state, which I think is akin to a meditative state. Um, but it's that state that you're in when you're in the shower or when you're just taking a walk or you're just relaxing. And that's when you get your greatest insights. Oh, absolutely. You're just floating. I would say it's more of a theta that half awake. Yes. Half a sleep state or just above uh, Delta. Yes. Let's talk about meditation. 
the other day someone asked me what kind of meditation I practice, and I thought, what an odd question. I practice different techniques depending on what I need, you know, in the moment. And I saw something on your website speaking to this concept of being more fluid with meditation, because research shows that different types of meditation have different impacts. Uh, Definitely. And I think um, mindfulness has received a lot of attention. Yes, it's like that's all there is. Everybody wants to do mindfulness. And I'm going, wait a minute, there's so many different types of meditation. Yes. And the interesting thing is, I, I always think that mindfulness has gotten so much attention because of the research. And the reason researchers love mindfulness is because it involves a scientific process. Uh, Basically, you observe in an objective way and you label. (laughs) Those are things that scientists do all day long. So I really think that's why they love this practice. They don't have to leave their paradigm ever. Oh, okay. I was wondering why is all the great research on meditation on mindfulness? (laughs) Well, and that's the, the, and then you see that, you know, you ask, you know, and then you try and get people to do mindfulness and it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't. And then people say, I can't meditate. And it's like, no, maybe you just didn't find the shoe that fit yet. And that's why with the veterans, I was going to do a mind. Well, I was in a mindfulness research lab and yet, you know, the VA was like, oh, their veterans are all dropping out of our mindfulness class. And I'm thinking, I'm not surprised because. It's depressing. <laughs> well, and they're so anxious. Like it, when you have high anxiety, and you close your eyes and sit there and try to be mindful, it makes your anxiety higher. I know because I had really high anxiety and I started with mindfulness and it definitely did not work for me. I just, it, it was too intense in terms of the the experience. And um, uh, that's when I connected with breathing, uh, which then allowed me to calm down, which then allows me to meditate much more easily and fluidly. And so that's why I did the research with breathing with the with the veterans. Oh, and it excellent. worked amazingly. Excellent. And they could feel within minutes, they said, oh my gosh, within minutes, I feel calmer. And it made sense to them, whereas the mindfulness didn't. Oh, that makes me feel so good because <laughs> a friend took me to meet her, you know, a monk and, and he gave a talk on mindfulness and I found it very inspiring. And he was a lovely, lovely, beautiful man. And I tried the next day to practice mindfulness. <laughs> Yeah, and it put me in the worst mood. <laughs> I was too much in my head. I was too much in my head. It just didn't work for me. I, I like a full body meditation where mm-hmm. I feel it in my body. Well, and I think that, you know, you have such great insight when you say that you you sometimes feel that your work puts you very much in your head. So it, for, for, for someone for, for whom that's the case, and it's certainly the case for me too, I very much benefit from a practice that is not head-centric, that is not a cognitive exercise. But I do find it really interesting that the academics who've done the research <laughs> are so attracted to something because they never have to leave their own paradigm. Does that make sense? Totally. It fits. It's a hand-in-glove perfect fit. It is. Very comfortable. <laughs> and in fact, sometimes you talk to academics about the body and they're just like, or psychologists, and they just feel really uncomfortable about it. They don't like it at all because it doesn't fit the current paradigm. And yet, and yet there's a lot to be done there. And I've seen that in my research with veterans. And there's a lot of research coming out showing that, you know, we aren't just walking heads. No, and veterans, my goodness, they're, they're physical people. They very physical. And also they're no BS. Like if something doesn't work, they're going to laugh in your face. (laughs) So (laughs) it better work. (laughs) You know, the quote, the that the Dalai Lama says the purpose of our lives is to be happy. It begs the question, what is the secret to being happy? 
Um, I'm not the Dalai Lama, obviously, but from the, all the research that I've done uh, and that I've looked at, I would say the secret to happiness is taking care of other people and yourself because um, there's, there is, seems to be no greater joy, no greater fulfillment than a compassionate altruistic lifestyle. Um, and yet in order to engage in that lifestyle, you need to have that compassion for yourself too. Beautiful. It makes perfect sense. I like the way you, you uh, boiled that down to one thing, compassion. Yeah. Compassion for self, compassion for others. <laughs> Emma, uh, tell us your website. You have great things going on on your website. I love your website. Oh, thank you. Um, my website is myfullname.com, so E-M-M-A-S-E-P-P-A-L-A.com. And um, I update it regularly with my blogs. And I had to do a list the other day of all my blogs for for a resume. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there is a lot on there. <laughs> there is a lot. Um, and these articles you have, you have great articles. I, I write for Harvard Business Review, but then I also write for Mind Body Greens. I called you today. So it's a, it's a whole range of different styles and audiences. Um, but I like it that way because um, I've, what I've found as a psychologist and researcher was that there are so many great insights to be found um, in, in, in the research studies. And the world deserves to know about them. Absolutely. And for, yeah, so that's why I write what, what I write and, and I write for a broad audience. You sure do. And you've got classes coming up. You have a seven day mini course. Oh, yeah, I have a that's um, that's actually a gift on my website. Oh, excellent. For anyone who subscribes. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, that's a gift. But I will be um, teaching at Kripalu um, Yoga Center um, in Massachusetts sometime in the fall, probably. Um, and I'm going to put up a uh, any upcoming talks and things, I put those up on my website. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been great. I love your book. Thank you, Kelly. I am glad you enjoyed the happiness track. Of course. I loved it. Once again, we've been speaking with Dr. Emma Sapala, author of The Happiness Track, and her website is Emma Sapala, that's with two P's, dot com. I want to remind everybody about my app, Meditate Me, which you can get on iTunes or Google Play. It's loaded with nine different meditation tracks. Plus, you can order from iTunes or Google Play or in-app and download directly to your phone. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, be happy and be well. You have been listening to Theater of the Mind podcast, accelerating the evolution of human consciousness. Visit Theater of the Mind online at www.kellyhowell.com. Leave comments, questions, and feedback and join the conversation about consciousness. We want to know what you're thinking. Theater of the Mind podcast is brought to you by Brainsync.com. CDs and MP3 downloads for peak performance. Find them at www.brainsync.com. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh 
Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.